1: And we come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind, another week of just enormous uh, news, political news, specifically today being another day uh, that we have a lot to talk about. Um, So I'm glad you're joining us. Really happy to have you with us today. I want to make a quick comment. I've gotten a lot more emails from many of you out there who are listeners than um, I used to, and I'm really pleased about that because I love getting feedback from you. But I also have to say I am not very good anymore at keeping up with all of it. I do want you to know I read your emails, and in many cases, you give me ideas that I take to heart and in in some cases actually um, execute on uh, the show. So please keep writing me. I love hearing from you. I'm sorry that I'm not good at getting back to people these days. I'm at bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at gpb.org. Let's get right to our panel uh, Jim Galloway is with us. You know Jim; he's a longtime veteran of political coverage, a journalist who has been uh, covering politics for decades in Georgia. He's now stepped down from his role as the political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but joins us. I am
2: very glad to say on Fridays. Hello, Jim. Hey there. How are you doing today? It's uh, we've got a we've got a busy week to cover, do we not? Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's been, it's been a lot happening, and um, I can't wait to hear how everybody uh, talks about it. Um, Riley Bunch is back with us. She's public policy reporter for uh, GPB, a colleague of mine. Uh, Riley, you uh, were covering uh, runoff elections on Tuesday night, I know, and um, I'm sure you've been paying close attention to all the other ways Georgia has been part of the national news this week.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah, between the elections and uh, Georgia's role in the January 6th committee meetings and hearings, it's just, it's been a crazy time.
1: Amy Steigerwald is uh, with us, professor of political science at Georgia State University and associate chair of the political science department, we should say, at Georgia State. Um, Amy, I'm glad you are here with us today. Um, And Fred Smith, who I'll introduce uh, more formally in a minute. Uh, You uh, have spent a lot of time studying the federal courts, so it's going to be interesting to hear your take on the decision that the uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, finally released yesterday on the New York gun law. There's a lot to unpack there, but uh, for the time being, thanks for being with us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Fred Smith, professor of constitutional law at Emory University, former uh, clerk to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Sotomayor. So uh, Fred, this is a great day to have you here as well. Thanks for joining us.
4: It's always a pleasure to be here.
1: So let's start with uh, a news that relates to the insurrection, but um, that uh, brings us back to Georgia. Um, And we're talking now, Jim, really about the roots of the insurrection. We all know that uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is now in the midst of special grand jury sessions in which she is investigating whether there was any criminal activity uh, involved in the way in which a number of officials, including the former president, tried to overturn the results of the Georgia presidential election. And we have now learned that Governor Kemp is going to testify in front of the grand jury. Uh, and Jim, one of the things that's interesting about that is we don't know anything about what way in which Trump may have had direct communications, tried to influence Brian Kemp during that period when he was talking to Brad Raffensperger and other state officials. We may not learn what, what uh, Kemp will tell the special grand jury yet, uh, but it is interesting that he's going to go tell them their, his story.
2: Yeah, look, uh, 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 Governor Kemp had every motivation not to not to disclose any any kind of communication with Donald Trump uh, before May 24th. That was the day of the primary when he was facing down David Perdue. Uh, it was it was it was essential that he he not uh, advertise any 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 public splits, any any further public splits that he had, had with Donald Trump. And that, that's something I'd, I'd, I'd like to point out that. You know, Fonnie uh, 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 Willis has is, is been actually quite astute in this. Uh, you're not seeing. You're not. Uh, 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 now, now this uh, Kemp will be doing videotape uh, his testimony by videotape. It'll happen on July 25th, but but like Raffensperger, uh, his his testimony before the Fulton County Grand Jury is coming after uh after the primary after the contest is over so so there is there's there's some political accommodation being made to to recognize that that uh a witness might be more forthcoming at one time than another
1: uh oh you know uh riley um like i said the testimony in this special grand jury is not released to the public uh at, at least it won't be for some time So we really don't know what he might have to say. But it's hard to imagine, given how uh, focused Trump was on overturning Georgia and the calls that he made to others, that there wasn't some direct communication with Brian Kemp at some point.
0: Yeah, and I think this is also something we can draw off of the January 6th committee hearings, right? A lot of the efforts that Trump was going through um, with the DOJ and his lawyers tie in and are directly related to a lot of the things that we know about that were happening in Georgia. So um, Jim is absolutely right there. There's no reason that Kemp would have wanted to talk about these things um, due to a general election campaign. I think as uh, things will come out that, we'll, that we will learn, you know, um, there's been quite a number of people that testified already, you know, Brad Raffensperger testified, a number of Democrats that were involved in the, the committee hearings that heard from Rudy Giuliani testified. Um, so it, it's big news that Kemp is going to be there. He's probably going to be one of the highest profile um, people that they talk to in this case.
3: Yes, and a big part of this is, again, trying to, um, because in many ways, right, what the DA probe is doing here in Fulton County is what the January 6th committee doesn't really have the ability to do, which is to potentially, right, come up with either sort of civil or even criminal charges and to determine where it goes. And a lot of this is this focus on, um, which we've seen the January 6th committee really presenting that Trump uh, knew what he was doing and was continuing to do it, even when told, right, that there was no evidence of election fraud, because that's to give the sort of intent, right, the, the motive behind and the intent, um, and to potentially go forward with that. And so, again, to reveal these sort of inner things that may have happened, right, we know sort of publicly, right, the, the Raffensburger tape is, is the biggest one. But we also know that, Uh, There were behind the scenes pushes to get Kemp to call a special session. Um, And we don't, but what we don't know is how often that was happening, right? And also who else was involved, right? Was it simply Trump? Was it that there were also other calls coming from other members of the administration, right? Was it a one time thing or was it multiple? And that's again going to the sort of broader idea of. How concerted was this effort to really try to um, upend, right, the sort of legally laid out democratic process?
4: Fred? Sure. Right. Right. So ultimately, uh, it's primarily uh, the former president, President Trump, who is being investigated. Uh, And so presumably one of the big questions, uh, no matter who's being interviewed, including uh, Governor Kemp, uh, is, you know, any indicia. Uh, of what President Trump's intentions were. So anything that he said or did, uh, and as Amy said, some of these are things that we know, but some of these might be calls or things that we don't know the details of, um, and the grand jury will at least have a better sense of that uh, as they make their determination.
1: Um, so uh, let's move from the Fonnie Willis investigation and tie it into the hearing of the uh, House January 6th Committee uh, uh, Held yesterday, we all know that the focus of yesterday's hearing was on Trump's efforts to engage the Department of Justice in his effort to uh, paint the elections in key states, Georgia being a major one, as fraudulent as states that he actually won. And and it was shocking testimony in many ways to hear uh, the the way the extent to which Trump tried to engage. DOJ officials, including the acting attorney general, um, and they rebuffed him in every case. Um, and Riley, Georgia played a big role in yesterday's hearing, again yesterday, uh, because um, as, as um, the highest ranking members of the Department of Justice refused uh, Trump's efforts, uh, out of nowhere, a guy named Jeffrey Clark, who is actually an environmental attorney in the Justice Department, suddenly f- came into Trump's sights, and Trump started communicating with him directly, we learned, and uh, suggested he should become the new acting attorney general because he was willing to, in fact, uh, help Trump in his efforts to uh, to uh, paint this the picture of the fraudulent election. And one of the things that Jeffrey Clark did— was draft a letter that um, was he wanted to send out to Brian Kemp, uh, Speaker David Ralston, and Butch Miller, President Pro Tem of the Georgia Senate. And I want to read just a It never went out. But, but the president wanted it to be sent. Uh, Clark tried numerous times to get it out. And I'm going to read you just a little bit of it. The letter was, has been public, but, but it's good to remember what it, what, what it was. The Department of Justice is investigating various irregularities in the 2020 election for President of the United States. The department will update you as we are able on investigatory, uh, investigatory progress. But at this time, we have identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election in multiple states including the state of Georgia. This is not true. No doubt, uh, many of Georgia state legislators are aware of irregularities. Yes, there were Republican legislators promoting fake theories. But then uh, after that, he goes on and he says, the department recommends in light of these developments that the Georgia General Assembly should convene in special session So that its legislators are in a position to take additional testimony, receive new evidence, and deliberate on the matter consistent with its duties under the U.S. Constitution. And of course, uh, what he's really trying to do is to get the legislature to to convene, to throw out the duly elected uh, Biden electors, all part of that scheme of the fake electors led by David Schaefer. I know I talked a lot, but I wanted to frame it for you to start talking about it, Riley.
0: Oh, my gosh. There's a lot going on, isn't there? You know, I think we heard an NPR right before your show started. There was no level state, local official that was not being pressured in some way by the former president to overturn the election results in Georgia. Right. And this letter, this letter by a loyalist that really has nothing to do with the Department of (laughs) Justice um, investigation into fraud. Right. It is just goes to show the level at which Trump would seek out people who would do these things for him and would push these false claims for him and how it trickled down to Georgia and, you know, the impacts we saw there. And I, I would remind that we had those kind of unofficial committee hearings where a lot of Trump's allies, Rudy Giuliani, were pushing false um narratives as well. and a, a lot of our Republican state officials work letting it happen, right? Um so with this with this DOJ letter, with all the information we're coming out about Georgia Kemp's upcoming testimony, you you just see the <laughs> level that Trump was going at all the different areas of the government to overturn Georgia's election results.
2: Jim things first of all I, I think we need to note that 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 lieutenant governor uh, Jeff Duncan was totally disrespected in that letter uh he was he was omitted <laughs> on the re- on the reception list because I think that because he had already kind of uh outed himself as a as a as a as an anti-trump Republican uh but just just further context I mean this this Georgia letter is is as is, is you might call it this was the central the uh, central topic of the January third meeting in the White House, where 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 Trump basically confronted the top three uh, members uh, leaders of the, of the U.S. Justice Department, with Jeff Jeffrey Clark in the room with them, uh, and saying you 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 put I mean the, the, the theory was you put this letter out, and me and my, me and my buddies in the house uh, 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 in, in Congress will do the rest uh this was this was this was the foundation of of what was supposed to happen on January 6th the political this is the political uh uh revolt right here this is this is where you you're you're establishing a reason for for uh the senate to to reject those electors to send it back to Georgia uh you would you would have you would have some uh, uh you would have had uh, the House Freedom Cau- Caucus uh uh backing you up all the way on this so it was—it's—that—the it's, Georgia letter is actually going to go down in history is a very important document, I think. I, I think that's right. Um, Fred, um,
1: one of the most astonishing things we heard, I think, and I'd love your thoughts uh, in, in testimony yesterday, was uh, Jeff Rosen, the acting attorney general, and his number two, Richard Donahue. Uh, as they described how they repeatedly rebuffed President Trump directly, said there's no truth. They They kept— the, the president and his people kept coming at them with all these crazy conspiracy theories. They rejected all of them. And finally, I, I frankly don't remember whether it was Rosen or Donahue who made this comment, but one of them said, the president eventually said to us, just say that the election was fraudulent and leave it to the Republicans in Congress to do the rest. Fred?
4: Yeah, no, that is uh, remarkable. Um, and. You know, part of why there's so much focus, I think, on what people told President Trump um, is that it, that furnishes the basis for Trump's actions being fraudulent, right? So, you know, if he truly believed that, uh, that the election had been stolen and he engaged in certain mm-hmm. conduct, um, that's not to say that everything that he did as a result would be justified or even legally justified, but it would, it would, it would certainly make it more difficult to call his actions mm-hmm. fraudulent. Um, but the idea that uh, that uh, people around him demonstrated with evidence time and again, no matter what conspiracy theory he brought, they rebuffed it uh, and he would just jump from one to another uh, until he just kind of ran out of them. And then, you know, then he finally just kind of had to uh, say, just just make it happen. Right. Um, and, you know, that that sort of thing suggests that you know, he didn't believe all of these uh, theories um and uh, but the, the the goal was to uh, stay in power no matter what, and not have a peaceful uh, transfer of power
1: Amy
3: um I think the only other thing to add on all of this, which might sound hyperbolic, but then again, all of my uh, colleagues who study international relations tell me constantly it's it's not, is that one of the most important parts of this story is that yes, it didn't happen. But imagine if even one of the people in this story had said, OK, imagine if the attorney general right, or the acting attorney general had said, OK, imagine if the governor had said, OK, imagine if the secretary of state had said, OK, um, and that becomes what's really difficult is that one of the things is we sort of rely on in the United States that people are going to follow the laws. And of course, the question for those of us who study it is. On some level, why, right? What causes people to do that and not to act in a way? Because we do see behavior like that happening, uh, to be perfectly blunt, routinely in other countries, um, who's happened all the time. We see sort of not following that. And this is one where it is so easy to have seen where someone might have given into that pressure and have said, "Okay, right? We had somebody who was trying to, uh, in the form of, of Jeffrey Clark. And so I think that that's the other part of this is to remember that on some level it is it shows sort of that fragility of how much we rely upon people being willing to do what is legally correct um, and not given to the pressure, for example, of the president of the United States saying to you do this, Um, especially when normally we presume that the president of the United States is giving lawful orders. And so I think that that also goes part and parcel and is one of the reasons why they're so focused on this is to sort of show how um, fraught that could be, because what happens if the next time there is someone who's willing to take those actions?
1: So, uh, Jim, one other element of this that I'd like to talk about, and I turn to you on this first uh, because uh, you have the, just the history we, we need to discuss it. We know that on the Sunday before the certification, before the final acceptance of the votes, the January 6th acceptance in, uh, in Congress, the... Uh, that Trump called together all these, the, uh, car- the people in this drama, Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, Jeffrey Clark, who he wanted to elevate at that point, to acting attorney general, to have the guy who would finally carry out his bidding on pursuing the fake elections. And the meeting was extraordinarily tense, according to the testimony we heard yesterday. And eventually, um, Trump had to back down because he was told by Rosen and Donahue, you're going to have every major U.S. attorney, everybody in the Justice Department that um, of significance is going to resign if you try to put Jeffrey Clark in place. It, that, and you talked about the histor- historic value of that letter. That meeting takes us back to the days of. The Saturday Night Massacre, October 20th, 1973, when Richard Nixon uh, ordered his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to fire the special prosecutor in the Watergate case, Archibald Cox. And we know that that led to a series of resignations, too. This is every bit as historic and even more breathtakingly um, broad in terms of how Trump tried to overturn the election.
2: Oh, no, no. This, look, look, uh, what what uh, what was about to happen that Sunday on January 3rd would have made the Saturday night uh, massacre look more like a, a domestic dispute. I mean, I mean, they were mm. talking. I mean, I mean, he was uh, these fellows were talking about about uh, losing every assistant attorney general and the people under them and the people under them. Uh, and I think the phrase the, the best phrase there was that uh, was that Jeffrey Clark would have found himself leading a cemetery a graveyard. Mm-hmm. Uh but if I could if I could pose a question to 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 Fred and and Amy the, our attorneys Fred first if you could. Uh okay we've been talking about what a, what what essentially, uh, essentially is uh Donald Trump's uh strategy of willful blindness. And it, it, is there a legal standard that has to be met uh to prove willful blindness because because it's uh, uh it, it is a strategy.
4: Uh, Yes. I mean, sometimes in criminal law, uh, enough evidence that someone was intentionally sticking their head in the sand and, uh, you know, being being the ostrich of sorts, um, you know, can be enough to demonstrate uh, intent. Um, You know, and so, you know, there's a number of federal statutes that are at issue here, each of them kind of with their own case law and so forth. Um, You know, and and in some instances, uh, the kind of ostrich strategy uh, that Trump w- was employing, um, you know, might have doomed him more than with respect to others. Um, but yeah, but it, but it is to say, the mere fact that someone just never says out loud mm-hmm. um, that they know certain things um, is uh, is not, you know, kind of a, a get out of jail free card for anybody who's listening to the president at home <laughs> deciding <laughs> how to structure your own affairs.
3: Yeah. And the flip side is what sort of Fred was talking about earlier, is that it's not part of the issue is, is that if, in fact, there becomes this problem of what if the president truly believed this? Now, that might be delusional, right, which is not sort of not a technical term there. But if someone truly believes it and is acting sort of in good faith that the information they have is correct. Right, that also right, that then you really can't prove fraud because fraud sort of presumes that you know it's not correct and are acting accordingly to get it done anyways, whereas if he truly believed that this was what was happening, then that makes that much more difficult, which is why there's so much focus on this idea of to some degree um, that there becomes a point at which if so many people have told you. No, that's patently incorrect and false, and there is no evidence for that. That it sort of undercuts this argument that you could truly believe it, right? If everybody is telling you that, um, and so that's sort of why there's so much focus on on that.
1: Well, but before we take a break, and we have to in a minute, Riley, uh, you and I aren't lawyers, but it does strike me that when we learn. That a President Trump has said to the highest officials in the Justice Department uh, who have told him there was no fraud, when he has said to them, just say there was fraud, leave the rest to me and the Republicans, that comes close to, you know, at least starting off at a, a case that the president was acting illegally
0: yeah, and I think you know that's the ultimate goal of what the January 6th hearings are trying to demonstrate for the public too, right? Like you said, the millions of Americans watching these hearings—they they're not um, lawyers. They don't know about the criminal justice system It's just the evidence that the committee, the bipartisan committee, is you know showing and displaying in the testimony. It, it's shocking, you know, and it, it, and I think that that's the impact they're trying to have you know, on the onto the Americans watching this hearing.
1: Uh, Fred, we got to go to a break. But uh, am I right? Uh, does that suggest at least the beginnings of looking into whether he willfully uh, subverted in a criminal way the uh, uh, election? Attempted I think that's to? certainly.
4: I think that's certainly strong evidence of his intent. I do want to say one more thing on a related note, just I want to praise the voters of Georgia, though, (laughs) uh, because, you know, we've been talking about how important it is that institutions hold. And uh, in these primaries, uh, people voted for the individuals um, who uh, who upheld the Constitution and upheld uh, their duties. And uh, thank goodness for that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Great way to end the first segment of the show. Let's take a break right now. Uh, When we come back, let's turn to this uh, very important case that the Supreme Court uh, issued their ruling on yesterday. Uh, We'll talk about how it impacts the proliferation of guns across the United States and in Georgia. You're listening to Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Fred Smith, Amy Staggerwalt, Riley Bunch, Jim Galloway joined me for uh, today's political rewind of Fred Smith. We got a ruling yesterday from the Supreme Court on the New York gun case, gun uh, in which um, New York has restrictions on carrying a gun outside of the home. It had, the law in New York was that there had to be special circumstances, that your life, you felt that your life was in in, in danger. You uh, had a job that required you to have uh, more security that uh, law was challenged and the Supreme Court yesterday said uh, that law is invalid essentially uh, people have the right to bit ba- when it when it and Clarence uh, 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 Thomas was the uh, uh, justice who wrote the decision and he said uh, the right to bear arms suggests being able to take a gun out of your home and uh, have it on the street with you so Fred I want to get your take on it but if you don't mind Fred I want to start this conversation by just Telling people, reminding people just what the Second Amendment actually says. It's pretty brief. The Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And from that, we have had decades of contentiousness over what exactly the Second Amendment allows and yesterday we got a broad interpretation that says you can carry a gun anywhere.
4: Yeah, so in D.C. versus Heller, uh, the Supreme Court said that the most important part of the Second Amendment is that very last clause, um, the right to bear arms shall not be uh, infringed, um, or the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. the language uh, with respect to militias and so forth, um, that that is just kind of, it just sort of sets the stage Um, but that really all of the operative action uh, is in that very last provision. And and they went on to say that people have a right to carry a handgun in the home. And yes, yesterday the Supreme Court uh, took a step further um, to say that this does not just apply in the home, but this also applies outside of the home and that people also have a constitutional right uh, to carry concealed uh, weapons. this is going to mostly affect seven states that had stringent uh, uh, laws with respect to being able to carry a concealed weapon. Uh, Georgia is not one of those states. Georgia already, of course, um, has among the most um, you know, gun-friendly laws in the country. Um, but in California, New York, uh, Massachusetts, Maine, Hawaii, and, uh, and I'm missing some, but seven states in total, um, that's, uh, those are the states that are going to be impacted by this ruling. Um, At this point now, people will be able to access much more uh, easily. They'll be able to access guns. Um, And what this this opinion also does is it raises questions about kind of every gun restriction because it creates a new test for determining whether or not something uh, violates the Second Amendment. Um, And uh, so the court made clear that there are some restrictions that it will uphold. Uh, So they said that guns in courtrooms, uh, courthouses, that that continues to be uh, it's, con- it's constitutional to-, to ban guns there. Uh, it's also constitutional ban guns in, uh, in legislatures and in polling places. And they said outside of that, um, they're going to want a lot of, uh, of history um, demonstrating um, that, uh, that the restrictions are justified either by the state of affairs in the 1700s or the state of affairs in the 1860s when the 14th Amendment was adopted.
1: Amy, the, just to be clear, this was a six-three decision. It was this. It was the conservatives, the Trump-appointed conservatives on the court, who mm-hmm. contributed to this uh, decision going the way it did.
3: Yes, this is definitely a decision that falls along sort of our sort of normal ideological and partisan lines, and I think really shows the degree to which. Um, something I study a lot, uh, that a president's choice of who federal judges are going to be can really shift the dynamics of the law. And I think we're seeing that uh, much more starkly than we normally would in a number of these cases. Um, there is, I think, for a lot of people kind of an argument that it's, it's not really the Roberts court anymore, that it may be becoming the Thomas court, that we've sort of seen this shift. Um, and that on the sort of center of gravity of the court has really shifted over there. And I just to sort of um, piggyback on what um, Fred was saying, what is so important about this decision is not necessarily the – I mean it it is important, the very precise holding that this particular law uh, was unconstitutional. But the bigger point actually was the shift to a new test, to be utilized going forward and especially this test which was um, about how states have to now focus on trying to defend and the federal government, right, gun laws based upon whether or not they can make an argument that will satisfy, right, at least five members of the court that it is in line with historical practices as the justices of the Supreme Court will determine. And so there, there's a large part of this, which was the court going through and saying, okay, great, you pointed to a whole bunch of right early laws that seem very similar, but we don't find these to be either analogous or enough support for the determination that you've reached. And so it's an interesting one in that it shifts, because in part, the court said part of the problem with this law was that it gave a a lot of subjectivity to the state to determine who could make an argument about whether or not they should get this permit or not, right? And a lot of other places, there's very objective standards, and if you meet them, you get it. So what they've now done is shifted away from there, but to now having to say that you have um, been able to prove that your understanding of the historical background is the same as those um, on the court.
2: Jim, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, uh, we we need to note that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts and and and, and Justice Kavanaugh uh, had a, a separate opinion that said specifically mm-hmm. addressed specifically what, what what Amy was saying was that if you have if you have a uh, neutral. Requirements uh, uh, to issue concealed carry permits; those are those are those are those are those are acceptable as long as they're evenly applied to, and and there's no uh, there there's no uh, bureaucratic judgment of uh, of of uh, whether whether your answers or your your causes are are, are sufficient. Uh, but it, 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 question to our, our our constitutional experts here: What do you do? I mean. It's not as if the U.S. Uh, United States has a single history. I mean, we have you know we have multiple histories, uh, and which one which one is the one that that rules? I mean, you know, look, uh, the gunfight at the O.K. Corral was a was was provoked by gun control. You know, the Earp brothers were trying were, were trying to 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 to, to uh, enforce a ban on, on firearms in public. Does that, does that, does that win the argument? Well, let me, let me add to that,
1: if I may, Fred, and and then Amy. Um, I, I, I'm also curious about, we know, as it's already been stated, what Georgia's law now is, you know, what they call, Republicans call constitutional carry, uh, open carry. Um, but I'm wondering two things about that. Number one. Is there anything in, in this language about, yes, we do allow for certain restrictions, that rather than um, eliminating the possibility that the Georgia law could be challenged, offers opponents an opportunity to go back to the legislature and say, okay, the Supreme Court has now ruled that there are certain restrictions that can be, could, put, in, could in, can be put in place mm-hmm. and introduce legislation. To do just that. Is that an opening, Fred, or do I misunderstand this entirely?
4: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the politics of it, does this, you know, it, this is states that don't have the most recent Georgia law, um, will they now have more ammunition because they're able to say, hey, this may even be constitutionally required. I mean, I'm not sure, right? It may it may give you a window though into what the Supreme Court may in the future say is constitutionally required, right? So Two days ago, it was not constitutionally required to allow people to carry concealed weapons. The law, the constitution, was limited to handguns in the home. Now it involves concealed weapons. It may well be that one day it could, uh, the, the court will say that you know, that you can't uh, require permits at all unless you can show that you know in 1868 or that uh, in the, the late 1700s that something like that uh, was allowed during that time.
1: um, Actually, Riley, I want to get you into the discussion because I want to talk about the political implications of all of this. Um, uh, We know that uh, the governor's race uh, is going to uh, talk about guns uh, extensively uh, after uh, Governor Kemp signed the bill, uh, that that open carry bill into law. And I want to play for, for you an ad that the Abrams campaign has released on just that subject and talk about that a little bit. Let's listen to the audio of that TV ad.
0: As a pediatric nurse practitioner in Georgia, we see domestic violence. We see gun violence. The leading cause of death for young people in Georgia isn't car crashes, it's firearms. That's why Governor Kemp's new gun law that makes it easier for criminals to carry loaded guns in public. is not only irresponsible, it's directly harmful to Georgia's children and families. This is a guy who pointed a gun at a boy on
3: television. Enough is enough.
1: Riley, basically the last shot in that TV commercial is of that infamous commercial in which Brian Kemp is sitting with a young man in their home, and he has a shotgun in his lap, and they've slowed the video down so that it shows in more detail the uh, gun being pointed at the young man. Riley? Riley?
0: Well, absolutely, and you have to think about, you know, the context that these gun decisions are happening right now. You know, the, the Uvalde mass shooting at the school, the Buffalo mass shooting that we had, and now Congress passing. and now we're going to talk about uh, a gun control measure for the first time in three decades, and there's firepower on both sides. I think for the Democrats, you know, it's an easy opening to point um, – To those things, you know, the looser gun restrictions and Kemp's ad that specifically shows, you know, a young a young boy having a gun pointed at him. It's easy for Democrats to point to that and point at rising gun violence, you know, and make their case. On the opposite side of things, I think for the Republicans, the Supreme Court it just kind of handed them a win, right? You know, look, the law that we passed last session was basically upheld by the Supreme Court sided with us passing that law um, so there are definitely political implications on either side but both sides have openings to use this to their advantage
2: yeah yeah basically basically the 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 uh, Republicans got a, a win on on gun rights in in the immediate after aftermath of of two horrendous massacres and in in Fred's point is that this this ruling strictly affects maybe five or seven states uh, uh none of which are Georgia but I think what you what you, uh uh we've experienced in the in the last you know five ten years is that uh all politics isn't local anymore it's national and I think what this is this 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 is, uh Supreme Court decision can, can is is going to really fire up the the national debate over firearms uh along with along with this 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 uh this bill that's that the house is scheduled to to the senate bill that the house is scheduled to pass today and send on to Biden
1: yeah and we're going to talk a bit about that in just a minute but before we get there uh amy uh, uh, how you know we know that uh uh the bases on both sides are pretty well locked into place when it comes to almost any aspect of the election coming up. The question, though, is, is guns an area, uh, as abortion could be when we hear the Supreme Court ruling on that, is, is, are guns an area where we think there is potential for attracting voters across uh, from uh, their base positions?
3: Possibly. Um, Because I think, again, it's the question of what is the base position, right? So one can, for example, believe in gun rights and also be concerned about the proliferation and be in support of um, some types of limits being put on that. I think the flip side of it also, though, is what sort of what motivates voters and in many ways, um, somewhat ironically, winning. Decreases motivation to focus on an issue and have it spur turnout. Losing is what crimps people, right? Because now you can tap into feelings of fear. Now you can tap. Right, it it's a way to say, right, like now we really have to act. And so, in that sense, um, where we are probably more likely to see movement and that it would aid is on the side of those who want there to be stricter regulations than those who want broader ones, because now they've won, right? They've succeeded in what they want to do, and so it, it works as sort of less of a pull in that sense of, of motivation, whereas it allows the other side to be able to really play that up as something that needs uh, political action and response.
1: Yeah, thank you. That I, My question was rather inartfully asked, but thank you for uh, handling it. Uh, anyway, um, I guess, Riley, uh, to bring up an end to that part of the conversation, the question is— I, I suspect that all of the, though the Abrams campaign has put out this gun ad right now, timing for that is really good. Moving forward, uh, their big issues are going to be bread and butter issues, Medicaid expansion, public health. I, I, it'll be interesting to see how much moving forward this becomes part of the argument they make.
0: Yeah, and I think it also depends on, you know, the climate nationally, right? As, as Jim said, national politics is local politics right now, and you know, guns is the hot topic issue with everything that's going on. So moving forward in the general campaign, I think we're going to see ebbs and flows. We're still going to see some of, you know, the hot button issues, but definitely Medicaid expansion voting rights are going to be bigger topics that we're going to hear. All
1: right, got to get to a final break of the show. Uh, when we come back, more about guns because uh, the Senate— has passed a gun compromise. That's the first time we've seen any action on gun safety in decades. We'll talk about that after these messages. So, Jim Galloway, uh, the Senate has passed uh, their compromise gun bill. $15 $15 billion in funding for uh, the uh, various uh, uh, measures in the bill, including uh, money for mental health services. Uh, it, it offers incentives for states to pass red flag laws. Uh, it closes the so-called boyfriend loophole so that you don't have to be a spouse, a, a dangerous character to be denied a gun if you've uh, uh, been a violent with your partner. Expands bra- background checks, uh, for juveniles under 21, mental health records uh, for buyers under 21 as well. There's money in there for school uh, safety and the like. It, it, the question becomes, it's, people are celebrating it as a, as a first time anything has happened. The question is, will it make a difference? And we don't know the answer to that.
2: No, and and it's uh it, it 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 works at the edges. We're not talking about any bans on assault weapons. We're not talking about uh, uh, uh capacity of of magazines. Uh, uh, we're not talking about uh high velocity ammunition. So there's there's the the hardware is not being addressed here. We're we're just kind of working around the edges. Uh, you had 15 Republicans that is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, join join uh, uh join for passage in the Senate. Uh, uh, the first. This is the first gun legislation I believe since 1994, uh, yeah. uh, t- to have passed. So it, it. I think, I think the, the 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 breach in the dam. I think is is more important probably than the than the substance. Uh, I I I, w- I would like to point out that uh, it was this was a Senate action. The House is going to take it up t- t- today, uh, and and get it to Biden before the the uh, July 4th recess kicks in uh in uh last night in the audience in the audience one of the few few uh house members to uh to to watch what was happening in the senate was Lucy Mcbath who lost her son uh to to, to gun violence uh several years ago has made it a personal call uh, uh cause uh and uh i thought that was uh that that, that was uh, so, so clearly she recognizes the the significance of of what's going on here
1: Fred
4: yeah I, yeah, I agree that in that sense it is significant. Um, and you know, and then on you know on the merits, uh, what this law does, there's tougher background checks for people under 21. There's additional mental, mental health uh, funding. Um, they have funding to encourage red flag laws, uh, and uh, there's also they're closing what they call the boyfriend loophole. So if someone commits uh, intimate partner violence. Uh, and they're not married to the person, um, then this also bans uh, those individuals from uh, from having access to guns. So um, you know so it there's a lot it doesn't do, but there are things that it does do., uh, but I agree that probably the bigger story here is that anything got done in Washington on guns or anything else, right? Um, and uh, it it makes you wonder, is this the formula going forward? Um, you know, some moderate Democrats, some moderate Republicans coming together, Working something out together um, on maybe other issues, uh, you know, 20 years ago, or maybe it was, wasn't that quite that long. Maybe 15 years ago, there was the, I think it was a gang of seven. I think they called themselves who tried to work out an immigration mm-hmm. plan, and it just all imploded. Um, this approach reminds me of that, except it worked, uh, and uh, yeah. there's some hope in that.
1: Um, Amy, let's bring it back home to uh, Georgia. Um, the, the red flag compromise is interesting. They, they didn't uh, agree on a federal red flag uh, law. They want to leave it up to the states, uh, and they will have incentives for states to pass red flag laws. Now, we know how Georgia responded to the incentives to expand, fully expand Medicaid, despite the fact there would have been an enormous amount of money pumped into the state uh, treasury, Uh, They Mm -hmm. said no. It'll be interesting to see how Georgia reacts to the incentives around a red flag law, Um, uh, given that there are now Republicans in the party who are starting to think we better do something here. We can no longer afford to completely ignore uh, uh, people's concerns about guns.
3: some level, this is sort of a low-hanging fruit type way of doing it, right? The idea is that you are talking about people who have met um, sort of a clear objective standard. It ties in very nicely with the recent uh, mental health bill, the omnibus bill that was just passed by the Georgia legislature and, of course, spearheaded by Speaker Ralston. Um, and is the type of thing that ties into that, because, again, it's about our reactions to that, of expanding it, of sort of focusing on those types of things. And so it doesn't bring up the sort of broader issues that something like Medicaid does, which gets you into this kind of broader to what degree should the government be uh, really taking, care, right, doing these things, right? There were concerns about how much that might cost. Um, and things like that. And so I do think that this is the one where you can say, look, we've done something, right? All of these arguments that we're not trying to do something, it, it really is a kind of easy one to adopt and say, look, we've handled the things you're all concerned about while still protecting um, the individual rights that we've got there. And so it would strike me as, and of course, let's be clear that I'm not a political strategist. I'm, there's a reason I'm a political scientist, I'm not a political strategist, but. I do think it's the type of thing where it would aid them in those types of arguments that they're not taking um, that they're not taking account of the very real concerns that others are
1: raising. Well, on the other hand, you know, Riley, it's interesting that that Senate bill, uh, Chase McGee just told me, is now over in the House at this hour uh, Mm -hmm. as we do our show live in the morning. Um, And we've already heard from Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise. They're going to oppose this bill. So the Republicans do have. Uh, some of their leadership saying, we don't, we're not going there. We we don't like this kind of restriction. And, and it'll be interesting to see how that's mirrored by uh, Republican leadership here in Georgia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it still shows that there are pretty extreme divides between the Republican Party on some of these more core conservative issues. And I think that um, definitely since it is also an election year and um, the governor is up in a, you know, a hard race against Stacey Abrams, that will guide a lot of his response to these gun bills. But also I would think this is a relief, too, for Senator Warnock, who is also vulnerable and coming up on an election, right? You know, he's a vulnerable position, and he, but he can say he got something done. So it'll be interesting how they play on both sides, how they show this bill in Georgia and the campaign trail.
2: Uh, yeah, one, one, one just on the, just a, a dose of reality of of the fifteen uh, Republicans who, who who moved over to support this bill, uh, I believe a, a majority of them uh, either are retiring this year. Or don't have uh are don't stand for reelection until twenty twenty six and there's a lot of water to pass under that bridge. So 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 there there's that. The other thing I would point to is is there was John Cornyn, uh the, the who, who led of Texas, who led the Republicans on, on this, he had some interesting words about the NRA. And he says he anticipated no support for the NRA because it, it violated uh the NRA's business model. That, and and of, of, of opposing everything, every encroachment on the Second Amendment. And I, I, that was an interesting kind of way to put some air between yourself and uh, a very, very powerful uh, Republican constituency.
1: I, I think that's right. But I got to say, Fred, I, I know the NRA is, a, is one of the most powerful lobbies and has been for decades in Washington. But guns have become part of the Republican culture and it become part of an article of faith beyond whether the NRA rates you as double A or gives you a lot of money. Uh, Even if the NRA were to to dissolve tomorrow, it strikes me that guns are absolutely ingrained in the Republican uh, belief right now.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's right. But I also think Mm. that having a strong lobbying organization plays a role, otherwise they wouldn't exist. And we have seen the NRA weakened in kind of two directions. So they've been weakened internally by virtue of their own malfeasance. They've also been weakened from the right. So increasingly, um, there's a lot of folks who don't think that they uh, go far enough when it comes to uh, to taking positions on certain gun questions. Um, and so the, yeah, they're not as powerful as they were even, say, a decade ago.
1: All right. Uh, Fred Smith gets the last word on today's show. We're completely out of time. By the way, today is an opinion day. Uh, the the uh, Supreme Court has added this extra Friday. Uh, we don't really expect to see Dobbs v. Women's Health, the abortion case, come out today, but it'll be there next week. And when it does come out, Political Rewind will be talking about it, you can be sure. Lots of other political news to look ahead for, for next week, and we'll be on top of all of that. Thank you, Fred Smith, Amy Steigerwald, Riley Bunch, Jim Galloway for a great show, Chase McGee, Natalie Mendenhall, Jake Cook, who run this show and make it work. I am grateful to all you do. We're done for today, but back again with brand new shows on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.